The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on January 10th, 2021, our first episode of the new year. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I hope everybody had an okay, uh, okay holiday. As usual, we're joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam. Hey, Dave. You sound different. Do I sound crisper? You do. Did you get a special uh, gift maybe in uh, late 2020? I, I did. I, I, it wasn't Santa Claus, uh, but I, it was a little bit before. It wasn't from Santa Claus. I had hoped to use it for the last episode, but uh, uh, because of user ineptness, I couldn't figure out how to turn it on before our last episode. I, I am speaking to you, coming to you live from Edmonton. Well, not live, but live uh, from uh, from Edmonton on this brand new uh, Blue Yeti mic, which uh, which uh, um, uh, I hope sounds nice, crisp, crisp and clean. We've had had a number, a couple comments from from uh, listeners uh, over the past couple months, uh, just uh, commenting that they love the show, but my uh, my um, AirPods weren't cutting it anymore. So <laughs> I I made the investment, I made the jump, and twenty twenty one is the year. The year of Dave's voice. Well, it's great to hear you and great to see you on the video that no one else can see. Yeah, it's great. Great to see you, Adam, too. And we are thrilled to be joined today by our guest, Jared Wesley. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Berta Podcast. Jared? I, too, am coming to you from a Yeti mic. Excellent. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a club here. Uh, Jared is in, uh, an associate professor of political science at the University of Alberta and uh, political commentator. Um uh, I'm thrilled. I've been, been been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while. I'm really thrilled you could you could make it here, Jared. Um, how was your uh, How was your 2021 going so far? <laughs> I thought I would ease into a nice semester, <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> events both here in Edmonton and, and Alberta and south of the border are making for some long days for political scientists. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, no, no kidding. And and just before we before we delve into that. Uh, because you know, usually we spend usually we spend the first episode of twenty of the, of the year talking about what's coming up in Alberta politics. But um, I mean, we'd be remiss about talking not talking about what happened this past week. But before we get started, um, could you just tell us, share, maybe share with our listeners a little bit about what you do and some of the research and some of the work you've been doing with the, at the University of Alberta? Sure. Well, I, I've been at the U of A since about 2011 on and off. I came over full time in 2017 and my research program since then has really been focusing on Alberta political culture, trying to understand um, the underlying values that that guide us as as Albertans as we try to make sense of the world around us. So we use a combination of surveys and focus groups and online experiments to try to you know uncover those unspoken norms that form boundaries around what we think is acceptable and not acceptable to talk about or do in, in Alberta politics. Interesting. And this is this is the, the this is the Common Ground project. Is that what uh, what part of part of what it is? That's right. So Common Ground brings together all of these different methodologies with about a dozen U of A uh, researchers from all kinds of disciplines, from sociology and business through design and anthropology and, and political science to try to make sense of. This disjunction that people have talked about for the last number of decades, how can Albertans in public opinion surveys look like the rest of Canada? They're, they're actually pretty centrist, right? Especially when it comes to social issues. They may be more fiscally conservative, but they're certainly socially progressive on a lot of things. And yet we look at their, their political behavior and they continue to elect conservative governments for one, um, but also they, they seem to be um, 
reluctant to push for progressive changes like a, a provincial sales tax, for example. So the Common Ground project was built around trying to understand this disjunction between what we see in surveys, public opinion, the median voter, and what we see in terms of, of political outcomes. That's that that that's really interesting. We talk a lot on this podcast about, I mean, obviously about Paul about Alberta politics, but what you know, what drive, try, what try to, we try to break down what drives Albertans to make, make certain decisions and especially around election time about why, you know, why people vote in certain ways politically. And, and I mean, you're right. It, it's, I mean, the, the frequently I find Alberta, Albertans, at least from, I mean, us, we, we kind of do this to ourselves sometimes, but, but from the outside Alberta, there, there's a lot of stereotypes that, that kind of define Alberta and why the try, try to, uh, people use as kind of a shortcut for, you know, um, uh, explaining why Albertans always vote conservative in, in large numbers. Not, not all Albertans vote conservative. I mean, we've in the past recent years in Alberta, things have become very interesting, maybe not so much at the federal level as much, but at the provincial level, we, you know, all of a sudden have, you know, we're, 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 we're we've been thrust into this, into this world of competitive electoral politics, or at least it seems like competitive electoral politics. There's been a number of, of polls that have been released. I think four out of the last five polls actually have the, the public polls that have been released to actually have the NDP uh, leading the UCP to, to, ver to various degrees. Um, uh, but I find that it's, it's um, you know, so sometimes we, we, we obviously we break, we break those stereotypes, but it's kind of makes, it makes the, uh, makes Albertans and makes people outside Alberta, um, gives them a harder time to, uh, uh, you know, push those stereotypes or, or use those stereotypes to kind of, to, to, to define us. Yeah, I think, you know, on one hand, there are a number of Albertans who on an individual level claim to be conservative. Mm -hmm. And a, a small section of those would actually have beliefs if you measured them through focus groups or through um, interviews or surveys, they'd actually be conservative, right? They, they take policy positions that we would traditionally associate with conservatives. For a much larger group, conservatism is more of an identity, right? I'm conservative. They don't, mm -hmm. even some of the folks that we've talked to in our focus groups don't even really know what the term means. I know I'm on the right side of the spectrum. What does that mean? Well, I, I don't know. I, I like Stephen Harper, right? Mm -hmm. So some of it, some of it has to do with an identity. And that's where our research comes in is, is identity is, is not just an individual's personal opinions and beliefs, right? It's an attachment to a broader collective. And we've known for generations that Alberta has a conservative political culture. And that political culture is often ignored. It's kind of used as a residual explanation for, well, why do, why do Albertans vote for 40 years for the same political party? Well, it's their political culture. Well, how do you know their political culture is conservative? Well, because they continue to vote for conservative parties. Why do they vote for conservative parties? Because they've got a conservative political culture. It's that circularity, right? That's really frustrating for those of us that, that take this stuff rigorously, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're trying to break down, what is it that, that conservative identity, what does it do to even progressives in this province that helps to shape their, their behavior. And as I said, I think it, it creates a set of boundaries of what they feel is acceptable in, in political discourse. Not allowed to talk about a PST, for example, but it also shapes what they think is possible, right? We hear a lot of people say, well, what, what uh, you know, I voted for the conservatives. Why? Because there really was no other choice. Felt, felt like there was no other alternative, right? And what we're talking about there is, is people's conception of what is politically possible and acceptable in the community. And that's what we're trying to measure that that's political culture to us. 
that's that's super interesting. And wh where can uh, where can our listeners find more about that? Is there a website that they can go search or commongroundpolitics.ca? Um, you'll find uh, our newsroom there that has a whole bunch of well, we we'll be putting this up on the newsroom too. Um, but all all of the various uh, research briefs that we produced as part of our a part of our project and all kinds of information for all the geeks that want. So somebody said I love to geek out on that site every now and again. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll include a link to it in our in our show notes so our listeners can uh, can geek out on it. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure people will be very interested in in checking out some of the research and some of the uh, some of the stuff that you guys have have loaded up on that site and and some of the research you've done and shared. Um, so, I mean, speaking of of Alberta political identity, I feel like the past week in Alberta politics. I mean. The first week of January typically is uh, is a slow week in politics, right? It's the holidays have just happened. Um, people are starting to trickle back into the, into the workplaces. Politicians are starting to get back to, you know, go head back to Edmonton. At least cabinet ministers are probably starting to head back to Edmonton. It's usually slow. It's a slow news week. There's not much going on. Usually it's like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's slow, right? But this first week of Alberta politics was anything but. In fact, it was... It was kind of it was kind of crazy how how much happened in such a short period of time. I mean, starting on last Friday um, with uh, with the revelation, I think it might, have, might have even been on Thursday where, the, where it was revealed um, that uh, Cabinet Minister, now former Municipal Affairs Minister Tracy Allard, had gone with her family to continue a 17-year tradition to go fly to Hawaii for Christmas. Um, this uh, coming after the government had issued uh, recommendations, how there'd been lots of talk from government and lots of lots of um, urging Albertans to stay home to avoid non-essential international travel. I mean, we've talked a lot about lot about on this pod a lot on this podcast over the past year about how there's been quite a quite a bit of mixed messaging and maybe not direct messaging or confusing messaging coming from the Alberta government around COVID regulations about what people should do, what people can't do, um, but it. It seemed to me that the you know that that you were being encouraged not to go on planes, not to travel, not to travel overseas, not to bring COVID back to Alberta or bring COVID elsewhere um, during the pandemic, uh, and then to see a, a provincial cabinet minister go out and and do this, and then later on it kind of trickled out. This was kind of the perfect political scandal. The perfect uh, a friend of mine described this as the the perfect non criminal political scandal mm -hmm. because it. Mm -hmm. It included. I mean, it there was a there was a, uh, a sense of elitism. There was a sense of you know rules that applied to everyone else, but not the politicians. There was. Uh, it seemed that some politicians were may have been trying to hide what they did or weren't 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 upfront with it at, at, uh, to begin with about where they were going and what their intentions were. Um, and then the trickle out effect, how it was every day, it was almost, we've learned that one, you know, first it was a cabinet minister, then there was a parliamentary secretary who went to Hawaii, then there was an MLA in, in Mexico, and I think there might have been another MLA in Mexico, and then one in Arizona, and one in Las Vegas, and, and it kind of trickled out. And I'm not even sure that we fully learned entirely how many MLAs actually went, or went, went on hot holidays this year after they've been telling Albertans not to go on hot holidays. Um, but I thought it was really interesting how... Uh, the messaging from Premier Jason Kenney, starting on the, the initial Friday when he came out and, and gave a press conference, and essentially, in, essentially defended Tracy Allard for for going on a hot holiday. He said it was his fault for not being not being more clear that uh, that MLAs and cabinet ministers shouldn't travel, uh, and then uh, that uh, you know that he would be more he would be more clear and. And, it, and then he talked about how his government was actually encouraging international travel and trying to save WestJet as a corporation, which was totally bizarre because I don't remember any time 
in the past nine months where Jason Kenney has got up and said, I want Albertans to travel internationally to help WestJet and to save our, save this, this company and save our economy. So that was very bizarre. Um, and I don't necessarily think the premier was getting the best advice and that he, that he could have, uh, when he, before he stepped up to the podium and then the week kind of continued, uh, over the weekend there, there was just so much, um, uh, outrage I'd say from Albertans. I mean, I, I've been getting over the past week so much, so many emails, uh, in my inbox, so many direct messages from people who are just completely outraged. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, I don't remember, like, I'm trying to think what the last time people were this outraged. And I, I think it was like, it had to have been during the Redford era when people were just, they, they, it was all red. Alison Redford was almost, had almost resigned and people had just had enough. Or, um, I'm trying to think the other, the other point would have been the GSA, uh, the flub, the, the GSA issue, um, the way, um, uh, the Tories hand mishandled it when Jim Prentice had just become premier. And I think that would, that really ended his honeymoon period. Um, but it's, it's quite something. And, 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 and when you talk about identity, I think this really undermines, and I'm, I'm not, this isn't an original thought. I've heard other people say this as well, but I mean, I've heard, I've heard the, the comment that this really undermines Jason Kenney's, uh, uh, his desire to position himself as kind of the everyman Albertan. All of a sudden, the rules don't apply to his cat to, to his cabinet ministers. The rules don't apply, and 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 so I mean, Tracy Allard has now been removed as as Minister of Municipal Affairs. J uh, Jeremy Nixon's been removed as Parliamentary Secretary. The the MLAs have been removed from their committee um, uh, committee positions. Um, I mean, what, what I've thrown a thrown out a lot right there. What what do you think, Jared? <laughs> just just general comments. Yeah, I think you, you, you hit on a point that I, I love Janet Brown's uh, reaction to this one. She said, um, you know, if if uh, self-aggrandizement is kind of the uh, kryptonite of the left, then entitlement is the kryptonite of the right, right? And um, Rick Bell had an interesting take on these. He said, I, I don't think that the people that are around Kenny um, really appreciated the, the issues around entitlement. Uh, they weren't around during the Redford era. I, I disagree. Jason Kenney's been floating around this province for the better part of three decades. He knows exactly um, what what types of uh, messaging to avoid. And this definitely is one that, that um, if he'd had the foresight, would have got ahead of. Um, but yeah, it, it speaks to those old wild rose lines, right? About that these Tories are just full of themselves. They're entitled. They're in it for themselves. They're not in it for you. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think we're starting to see the growth in Wild Rose, Wild Rose support. What's interesting this time, though, is Wild Rose has got this new initial in their, in their party name, right? Because, first of all, they couldn't call themselves Wild Rose anymore because the UCP rolled that uh, trademark up as part of, the, as part mm -hmm. of the, the unity package. But now they're the Wild Rose Independence Party. And they've been drawing, uh, uh, as according to our research, they drew about eight points away from the UCP. Uh, during the first wave of the pandemic and according to a main street poll they've continued their momentum they've, they've drawn about another seven or eight points away since then so they got sitting at about 15 percent according to the latest main street poll i wonder how much more they can grow when they're mm -hmm. when they are associated and have made themselves known to be an independence party because i think you top out in alberta right now at about um probably about 20, we saw 30%, I think, in, in the November 2019 poll, but a lot of those folks were just angry and upset. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much that party is going to have to shift itself as it goes through a leadership campaign uh, over the next year or so, 
they're going to go through a leadership selection process. Whether the independent side will start to fall uh, by the wayside, and we'll see the resurrection of this old Wild Rose Party, which, as you know, became very popular when they when they attracted a leader like Daniel Smith, who harped and harped and harped on this anti entitlement um, mm -hmm. bit. And that's the last uh, last thing that Kenny needed. He was already flagging in the polls. His party already was. And now they, they've just kind of stepped on their own landline here. Mm -hmm. I, I, on on the, the Wilder's Independence Party, um, I think it's quite interesting. So I've been following the the Wexit groups. Follow, I've been following down quite a few Wexit rabbit holes and uh, Wilder's Independence Party rabbit holes and kind of this kind of, I mean, in Alberta, we've always had, we always have this kind of cottage industry of kind of fringe right-wing political parties. There's always a group of about four or five of them that exist. We have the, you know, before the, before the Wilder's Independence Party, it was the Freedom Conservative Party, and then it was the Alberta First Party, and then it was the Separatist Party of Alberta, and it was called a couple other things in between. Alberta it's not a first. brand new political party. And we have others like the Alberta Advantage Party, an, an actual independence party. Um, so follow, like following what, um, like what either the part, the whips Wildrose independence parties, interim leader, Paul Hinman has been talking about and Paul Hinman, who's our, our listeners may know, will, will recognize his name, former, uh, former Wildrose, um, MLA for carts and tape Warner from 20, 2004 to 2008. And then later he came back from I think 2009 to 2012 he was the mla for calgary glenmore he won a, a surprise by-election or he surprised he surprisingly won a by-election in calgary that really i mean i think added a lot of momentum to the wild rose party right at a critical moment when daniel smith was about to become leader um and there was a kind of a mass disenchantment with the progressive conservatives or with ed stelmack as the leader there was a lot of shifting going around the Alberta liberals were starting to collapse there was kind of a big vacuum in alberta politics and he kind of provided that spark to, to, uh, that, that gave them, well, gave them a lot more legitimacy in the legislature. They weren't just a party of PC floor crossers. They were a party that could legitimately go and, and actually elect an MLA in Calgary, which the party, that party had never done before. But one of the things that I've noticed about the Wildrose independence party is yes. I mean, obviously they're, they're, they've, they're connected to Wexit, the Wexit group. They're connected. They, they are, they are an independence, a separatist party, but they've also kind of globbed on to the, or, or grabbed on to the anti-masking, um, you know, uh, public health orders are a threat to personal freedoms that the kind of, uh, you see a lot of conspiracy theories about that online. And, and I know at least the Wexit group, um, has really, I follow them on, I, I don't, I'm not on parlor, but I follow them on parlor. I, I, I know I've, I've, I watched the page cause I'm interested to see what they're doing. Um, and there's been quite a bit of stuff around Donald Trump around what happened this past week in, uh, in Washington, DC. And, and I wonder about, I mean, a legitimate political movement. It, it, what is the like? What is the ceiling for something like that in Alberta? Is I mean, there are conservatives who might be parking their votes with the Wilders Independence Party because they are unhappy with the UCP, or they're just unhappy with Jason Kenney. And I think there's a differentiation between that, between being unhappy with the UCP and being unhappy with Jason Kenney, because I think Kenney is. I mean, he he is the leader of the party, but. I'm not. I think things might could change if he be if if he was no longer leader. I think I think he's. I'm a, not sure I think he's a drag that. on his party. I'm not sure about that because according to our our survey that we uh, conduct, we conducted one survey in November 2019 uh, and another one in August 2020, and it was interesting. Over that first wave of the pandemic, uh, Kenny's numbers went up. All leaders in Alberta went up. He was actually above water at that point, uh, according to our feeling thermometer. He was at 51, barely above barely above water, but he was there. Um, but it was the party that lost eight points. It wasn't him. 
So the party's popularity was actually being dragged down over that first wave of the pandemic. And part of the explanation has to do with the shift in Albertans' priorities. Mm. Like you asked, how do we make sense of, of Alberta voting behavior? I think the first thing you need to do is stop thinking in terms of positions, right? But start thinking about in, start thinking about people's attitudes towards parties and parties' approach to campaigns through the lens of priorities. And through that, you know, through that perspective, the 2019 provincial campaign was all about people choosing economy, pipelines, and jobs over whatever it was the NDP ended up landing on in terms mm -hmm. of their priority list. Um, but that has shifted considerably. Now it's healthcare. It's as of August. This is a long time ago, especially in pandemic politics time. But in August, um, healthcare and economy and jobs were running neck and neck for the first time that we'd seen since 2015. So people have already started to shift away from the party because they're thinking about other things other than jobs in the economy. Now we can debate whether the NDP is actually better at handling economic issues mm -hmm. and the NDP will try to, to, to gain ownership over that issue over the next year and a half as, as the jobs continue to, to flee Alberta. But at the end of the day, they often, we often end up a year out of the election with the NDP trying to make the election all about uh, healthcare and education, which they own, people trust them to handle most. Meanwhile, the um, while oh, sorry, the UCP getting ahead of myself, the UCP tries to make it all about the economy and jobs. And so that, that's the story of the first wave of the pandemic. The second wave story thus far seems to be that Kenny's now falling down below his party, right? Um, he was actually running ahead of his party, according to our, according to our poll Interesting. in August 2020. So it's kind of a, a, a double whammy for, for folks that support the UCP cause. And the last thing I'd say too is, People, I think, forget that in 20, 2019, people weren't enamored with Jason Kenney, and they really weren't enamored with the UCP. They were upset with the NDP, mm -hmm. right? Especially in Calgary and rural Alberta. And so that animosity, sorry, that the animosity towards the NDP is still there. The question is, where do you park your vote, as you said, right? And most people in rural areas seem to be parking with the Wild Rose Independence Party, but according to that Main Street poll that came out last week, only one poll, yes? Mm -hmm. But it, it does continue the trend that we saw uh, in, in our own surveys that suggest Calgary is now it may actually turn um, may actually turn NDP. So my big question over the next year or so is how many more people are going to cross the Rubicon, right? How many more people are going to cross over from being a UCP supporter to an NDP supporter? And just to bring that all together again, it's not as if people are shifting their entire ideological worldview. It's not about that. People's policy positions remain pretty, pretty solid over time. It's when they start to think about priority issues differently, when they start to value healthcare and education over the economy and jobs, or to put it in pandemic speak, when they start to value lives over livelihoods, they're going to turn away from Jason Kenney and the UCP because they know or they don't trust them to handle it. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that, I mean, I think you're right. In, in 2019, there very much was a, I mean, it, 2015, there very much was, there very much was an anger against the progressive conservatives and that, that resulted in a, in a, in an NDP government. I mean, there were various, I hate to use the word vote split because I think it simplifies things. I think that, that the, uh, the, uh, um, the 2015. I mean, you can just dis you disagree with me. Disagree with me if, if jump in and disagree with me. Disagree with me if you want. Uh, but in 2015, I really got the feeling that there was a that it wasn't that the NDP government wasn't necessarily a result of the split of of a split on the right. Even though there was a there were two conservative political parties that both got around 25, 27 percent of the vote. I, I I in going into the 2015 election and and afterwards, I really felt that there was 
Um, the vote split was really, but I, I felt was between the Wild Rose and the NDP in terms of the anti-PC vote because it was a government change vote. Whereas in 2019, there was a, I mean, there was there wasn't there were there were not two main conservative parties uh, breaking the conservative vote, but it was it wasn't necessarily a left versus right election. It was a throw you know throw the bums out election, just like it was in 2015. But the bums in 2019 ended up being the NDP. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I wish we had data on it. Um, I'm not going to go into the story here, but our survey provider, who shall remain nameless, pooched our sample, uh, so we don't have the survey results to back oh, up. No. What said, yeah, we asked them for to do an Alberta sample, and they they sampled all of Canada for us. So we got some interesting oh. views about Alberta politics from people in Quebec. Oh, that's good. Well, that's from that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So we don't have the data to back up what you're saying. But I think according to the data that we have right now, the people that are most amenable to switching over from the UCP to the NDP are in the suburbs. And this is a story, this has validity in that this is a story that we see in other uh, Western Canadian provinces, right? In, in Manitoba, for example, um, the, the big battlegrounds are in the suburbs in and around Winnipeg, right? Okay. And whoever wins those, and these are people that would vote for Gary Dewar, a new Democrat um, provincially and vote for Stephen Harper, two weeks later, right? And people mm -hmm. say, how do I make sense of this? Again, it has to do with their priorities. Dewar and Harper were talking about the priorities that they wanted to talk about or that they, they valued in those particular elections. The same thing seems to be happening in the suburbs in and around Calgary. We've seen a shift. That was the only area where we saw a shift of, of votes over the first wave of the pandemic from the UCP to the NDP was in the suburbs. And the NDP picked up about six points. So I'm wondering whether in the second wave, whether there are more people in those areas or in you know, in other parts of Calgary that might be shifting over the Rubicon. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I mean, and and whether that whether that trend or whether 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 that pattern will hold until the twenty twenty three election, because I mean, we know you know a, a few months in pandemic time is an eternity. Uh, you know, two years in in politics or a year and a half in politics is 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 pretty. Uh, uh, is is quite a long time, but I mean, once yeah. people shift, I mean, that the question is, is do people go back? I mean, if you've been if you've alienated a voter on certain issues, do they go back? Um, if your core issues are, you know, if you can't campaign successfully on your core issues in 2023, and I'm talking about jobs, economy, pipelines, which the you know the UCP defined themselves by going into the 2019 election and how they've it's basically how they've governed. Um, I mean, even over the summer, you know, there was a, there was a, a period where it seemed like the government was tried to pretend that the pandemic had basically ended and they were shifting back to the, you know, the econ economic re relaunch. And it was, you know, going back to their core issues. And I mean, obviously they were seeing the same polls that, that we were about where Albertans were shifting and, and, uh, and their support in the polls. Um, uh, but it'll be interesting to see going into 2023, but 2021, we still have 12 months left in 2021. Uh, so <laughs> and, and there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And I mean, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is not over yet. Uh, I mean, we've seen there's been, I mean, it seems like it's ramped up over the past week or so, but leading in uh, the last few weeks of 2020, when the vaccines were delivered to the provinces, uh, it seemed like the province, not just Alberta, this was kind of a Canada-wide thing, the provinces were stumbling out of the gate in terms of getting the vaccines out. I think I think Premier Kenny had promised, I think it was 29,000 vaccinations by the end of the year, and I think they only ended up getting six or 7,000. Uh, I know over the past week, that has been one of their big talking points uh, the, the provincial government is they're trying to uh, they're ramping up vaccines. They're trying to trying to change the channel from the the uh, the hot holiday scandal Aloha Gate, as some people have, have called. I think um, Aloha Allard is what uh, the the term mm -hmm. that Rick Bell coined that seems seems to have caught on. Um, and uh, I mean, vaccination seems to be the thing they're trying to uh, trying to change the channel with politically. Um, but 
uh, I mean, 2020 through 2021, there's there's a lot going on in Alberta politics. I mean, whether the I mean, whether the vaccinations are distributed in um, in a timely manner that, uh, you know, that that Albertans are going to be going to be happy with and going to, you know, that's going to satisfy people. I mean, I know there seemed to be quite a few people who were shocked about the provincial vaccination schedule when it was released uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I know that federally, Prime Minister Trudeau had said that, you know, every Canadian who wants a vaccination will be vaccinated by, by fall 2021. The provincial government rolled out a schedule saying that actually the general public will be open or vaccinations will open to the, to the general public starting in September 2021. And I know there were a lot of people who were shocked. There's a lot of people who, I mean, we want to get this over with. We want to we want to return to some form of normality and uh, and put this behind us. That's natural. I feel the same way. But I feel like it could be uh, very perilous for a provincial government that doesn't roll the vaccinations out um, yeah. in, in, in an orderly way. Absolutely. I mean, as a, as a husband of a public health expert, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that just because you've been vaccinated doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, to step away from the social distancing guidelines mm-hmm. or the asking and it does also doesn't mean if you've been in contact of somebody else that you're still not going to have to quarantine this this is going to be our our way of life well into 2022 as you mentioned though there's a lot of things to happen between oh, over 2021 and premier seems to be listening to ken Bosenkul's open letter to his chief of staff and saying make your number one priority about vaccines the, and and if they're able to deliver on that maybe this mm-hmm. I, when i first heard that schedule i thought this is a matter of trying to lower expectations and over mm-hmm. Right, um, which is something that um, Ralph Klein did uh, effectively when it came to budget balance and so on. So that was my first reaction. The other benefit of, of trying to change the channel using vaccines is it opens up another opportunity to slag Ottawa for being too slow. And we saw that uh, earlier this week with um, all conservative premiers, Pallister, uh, Ford and Kenny getting back on the same playbook and saying, we can get more, vaccine, more vaccines in people's arms if Ottawa would just hurry the hell up, right? and um, so I would expect him to pivot to talk about vaccines, particularly if Alberta continues to lead the pack in terms of percentage of population that's been vaccinated. But it's also another opportunity for him to pivot to talk about about how Ottawa is the bane of our existence out here in Alberta. And that's one of the reasons why he decided to, to call finally his, his referendum on equalization, which is going to be held in conjunction with the municipal election in, in the fall. And on that ballot as well is going to be Senate nominee elections for the first time in a long while here in Alberta. Um, th- there's also going to be, as I mentioned before, an Alberta party race, uh, leadership race, a Wild Rose Independence Party leadership race, likely a federal election happening mm-hmm. over the course of 2021. And it's not inconceivable to see each one of those votes be portrayed by both his proponents and his opponents as being a referendum on Jason Kenney's leadership. And all of that is pretext to the biggest vote heading into the to the 2023 election. You're already talking about how he's going to plan for that provincial election in 2023. He may not get there, given that he has to face a leadership review. And apparently, there's a lot of uh, folks working behind the scenes now to push that review to earlier part of 2021. But he has to hold it at mm-hmm. some point before 2022 because he's not allowed, according to the, the UCP rules, to hold it during an election year in 2023. So. Uh, hold on to your hats, folks. This is going to be a long uh, and I, I would guess hyper-partisan uh, polarized environment over 2021. Yeah, just looking over the past week, I mean, I made a comment to my to a friend of mine um, uh, right after right after Kenny's uh, 
Premier Kenny's press conference on on Monday, where he announced that uh, that his chief of staff had been let go, and that uh, that uh, Tracy Allard had been removed from cabinet, or had, had resigned from cabinet, or been resigned from cabinet, I guess. Uh, and at that point, I mean, I thought, you know, let's start the the uh, you know the Jason Kenny's political career death clock. Like it's you know, I, I, at that point, I, I was starting to think, you know, if this is how 2021 is starting out, if he's not able for, to recover from this, he, you know, there's you know, there's a good chance he might not be. Uh, be leader of this party by by this time next year by 2022. I mean, you know, you can, you know, Ken, Kenny has put so much of his political career, political capital himself into this party. He is a political machine, like kind of like n- 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 no one else I've seen in Alberta politics. But he's not, uh, you know, the the more he <laughs> the more he gets enveloped in this scandal, I'm I'm starting to think he maybe he's not. He's definitely a political machine, but perhaps he's not the political genius that everybody everybody thinks he is. And I guess we'll have to wait to see whether he's able to recover from this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to be a conservative leader in Western Canada at the best of times, mm-hmm. right? I mean, try managing a coalition that includes a bunch of libertarians, right, along with a bunch of social conservatives who can't see eye to eye on the role of the state in terms of anything, right? In terms of, you know, whole upholding traditional values and, and everything like that, throw in a bunch of neoliberals that are that are committed to cost cutting. And it's a very difficult coalition to, to manage. Um, Stephen Harper was able to do so successfully, I think, because he leaned very hard on the libertarian side and, and said, you know what, let's let's let everyone be who they want to be, right? When mm-hmm. it comes to a lot of these issues, keep the keep the state small and so on. And that seems to hold his coalition together. So even at the best of times, Kenny would have been challenged. Even before Aloha Gate, we heard rumors that his his caucus was at odds over how to handle the pandemic. You got a bunch of urban conservatives who were facing, um, I think, uh, you know, necessary pressure from their constituents to to implement some more restrictive measures to, to keep uh, COVID in check and bend the curve and so on. And they ran headlong into the rural conservative base that 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 is, is proven to be on Jason Kenney's mind more often than not, right? So he, is, he had t- a tough time managing that caucus to begin with. Um, and when party leaders are faced with that kind of internal tension within caucus and within cabinet, they're usually able to draw upon a popularity in the broader population, right? They're usually able to say, well, you know, I'm the leader of this party, but I'm also very popular among our party members. And I'm also very popular in the public. And they can actually ride over, right? And speak over the top of caucus and over the top of cabinet, as it were. With popularity numbers that he's got in, in you know, the high 20s, he can't do that. Mm-hmm. So where is his where is his uh, you know political capital going to come from? And that's why I think it's very telling. With his second uh, speech on Aloha Gate, he mentioned the word discipline at least five or six times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because to him, this is a caucus management issue, and it's a lack of discipline on the part of his his MLAs. But I think discipline also means a lack of party discipline from the top. So you're right. I think he had this aura of being this political mastermind, right? That was able to unite the right in Alberta. He's seen as being a very pensive guy. He's been known as you know staying up late in his condo, drafting orders in council and legislation. He kind of had that aura around it. I wonder how much that aura is is going to carry him through the next few weeks when uh, caucus is obviously as was at odds before, and and now I think he's even more at odds with each other. Yeah, I don't expect the next uh, the the first UCP caucus meeting of 2021 is going to be a very happy event. I think there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, 
uh, MLAs who are not, not only um, not only unhappy with each other and the, the conduct of some of their colleagues over the holidays, um, but also with the uh, with the the direction or, or miscommunication that they're getting from, from straight from the top. I mean, um, I mean, this is the you know the the, the personal responsibility thing that uh, that 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 Premier Kenny talked about a lot in 2020 about relying on Albertans to you know have the per take personal responsibility in dealing with this and and uh, I mean the you know. I don't say personal responsibility stops at the top, but the bucks the buck the buck stops at the top. So it will be very interesting. The Dave Burnett podcast is brought to you by BGC Bigs. BGC Bigs, that's boys and girls clubs, big brothers, big sisters of Edmonton and area, is looking for volunteers like you. Families that have needed help need it now more than ever. And with BGC Bigs, volunteers have the power to change the courses of young people's lives across our community during the pandemic and beyond. Together, we can ignite the hope that we all need right now. Dedicating your time to the life of a child or youth makes an impact that goes far beyond Zoom calls, video game battles, or tutoring sessions. Explore how you can get involved and watch our community change one life at a time. There's currently a need for virtual mentors, tutors, and in-person volunteers to be big brothers or sisters. Join BGC Bigs for a virtual coffee in one of their online open houses to learn more about volunteering and get more information at bgcbigs.ca or Google BGC Bigs. It's easier than you think. You can check them out at bgcbigs.ca slash volunteer. The Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, that endowment fund can start distributing funds. You can learn more about Edmonton Community Foundation, and you can check out its amazing podcast, The Well-Endowed Podcast, hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonking and produced by Lisa Pruden at ecfoundation.org. You ran through a list just a minute ago of things that are coming up in 2021. You know, one of the parties that I would, that would hope to take advantage of the situation, one of the, one of the, the parties that is always positioned to take advantage of, of, of the situation, but never seems to be able to actually grasp and get the momentum. This is kind of the story of the Alberta party, right? They're always on the, you know, they're 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 always on the cusp of, of 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 a breakthrough, or at least they believe they're on a cusp of a breakthrough, but they never seem to be able to make it. Twenty uh, twenty nineteen, you know, they got almost ten percent of the popular vote across the province, which is nothing to shrug at. That's that's a lot of people who voted for the Alberta Party, but you know, first past the post, their three their their two MLAs or three MLAs who two MLAs who were running for re-election were defeated. Uh, the their leader Stephen Mandel wasn't able to win his seat, didn't come close to winning his seat in, in Edmonton McClung. Um, so they're now. Uh, seatless in the legislature. They have uh, Mandel resigned uh, shortly after the 2019 election. Uh, Jackie Fenske, a former progressive conservative MLA, uh, was chosen as the interim leader, I think last February or last March, um, right when the right when the pandemic was starting. So there wasn't really, I don't think there was too much too much fanfare about it. Uh, and she, she's kind of, I guess, tried to shepherd the party through this, this pandemic situation, um, uh, you know, trying to lead a party uh, during a pandemic that doesn't have any a party that doesn't have any seats in the legislature during a pandemic. It's not like you can really get out there very much. Um, 2021, I know they're hoping to choose a new leader. Um, you know, do you see any, uh, any hope for the Alberta party in, in 2021 or going into the next election? 
Well, the folks that are in the Alberta party tent are ever hopeful. And I think um, part of part of why that's unrealistic is because they look at Alberta politics through that position lens that I talked to about mm -hmm. earlier. That's just not the way politics works. They think that by positioning themselves as a socially progressive and fiscally conservative party, they're going to be able to appeal to everyone. When in fact, elections in this province for a number of decades have been all about priorities. So I always ask, what's the Alberta party about? They're the party of what? They're the party of the center. Okay, but when we start to enter an election campaign where you have to choose between, and this is what it will be, I think, in, in 2019, it'll be between lives and livelihoods, mm -hmm. right? That's what it's going to come down to. It's going to come down to, you know, healthcare, education, live, like actual live, about people's lives. And, and then we'll have a pair of conservative parties going to be running about the economy and, and, and economic recovery. Where does the Where does the Alberta party land in that? Okay, they have to pick an issue to make uh, to make it a priority, and then prime the elect prime the elect electorate to think about that when they enter the ballot booth. But the other big challenge for them is that nobody really trusts them to handle any of these issues either. Right? The NDP was fortunate in 2015 that because they had a long history in Canadian politics, people knew them as kind of the party of healthcare. We knew they wouldn't at least pooch it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, Tommy Douglas, right? They're the party of Tommy Douglas. How could how could we not trust them with healthcare? What do Albertans trust the Alberta party with? I think this is why the, the choice of leader is so important, right? So I, I've got absolute, they've got nobody in mind here in particular, okay? So don't think mm -hmm. that I've got some kind of alternative ulterior motive here. But let's say they pick a physician, right, as their next party leader. That has the, you know, has the chance to at least establish some credibility on the healthcare issue and maybe start to pry away some of the priority voters who think that healthcare is most important that are with the NDP and then has them think about, well, maybe I do want a physician at the top of the ticket, right? Um, so I, they, they have to establish themselves as having some priority and then, and then have people trust them to handle that. Um, I think we'll see the traditional conventional push to get some old progressive conservatives to step into that leadership race. I think they'll try to attract some people to cross the floor out of the UCP. And here we look at some Calgary members and maybe even some, well, there's only one Edmonton member, right? <laughs> to pull over to that, to, to the party, but they're running out of time, right? Uh, and the leadership race is definitely gonna be an important stepping stone in that, but they, they've got a, a lot of work ahead to do all of what I just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The uh, the 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 constant struggle of trying to uh, you know trying to figure out what exactly they mean by saying that they're you know they're they're the center. I mean, really, they're they're it, they have a great name. I mean, presumably, they have a great name, the Alberta Party. You know, they're they're they are of Alberta, and I, and I, and you know, they're the idea was to you know to I guess replicate what happened in Saskatchewan or the Saskatchewan Party, but that was a completely completely different situation. Um, and and it's not something that just just an, a name can do. But it seems very. I mean, it seems very clear to me that in, in its very various iterations that it's had. I mean, go back ten years. Uh, ten years ago, the you know the Alberta Party was led by. Uh, it was a former Green Party. Uh, there was a former Green. I think a Green Party deputy leader that was involved in leading it. And then there was a former New Democrat Party candidate. And then there was a former uh, former Liberal in terms of of Greg Clark. And then a former Progressive Conservative in terms of Steve Mandel. So it seems to be. Um, that they've kind of gained an unfortunate uh, for them a re reputation of being kind of the the party where people go whether when they're not comfortable with the parties they used to be with. It's kind of the the party of exiles in in a, in a way. And I mean, I don't think that you know I'm not not um, saying anything person not saying anything about Jackie Fenske's uh, role as leader because I think she's you know, well spoken and she's likable um, and is probably doing the best she can. But uh, I mean, having a former progressive conservative MLA definitely doesn't uh, 
uh, you know, uh, end the myth or do anything to stop the myth that it's just a place for progressive conservatives who weren't happy about Jason Kenney becoming no, the I, leader of the UCP. I agree with that. And I think that this, this, the strategists too, I think, have fallen into the trap of thinking that the way that, that politics run nationally is the way that they run provincially, right? So a lot of people look at, you know, national politics, look at Canada's natural governing party being the liberals. Well, why are they the national government party? Because they're, they're the party of the center. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people don't realize just how rare that is in global democracies, right? That the fact that, that we'd have a party system where the dominant party historically has been one of the center. More often than not, we see what we see in Western Canada with a very polarized uh, party system with a party on the left and a party on the right. In, in Western Canada, now in Alberta in particular, we see that as long as the party on the right remains unified, they'll govern. And it's only when that party splits into two or three that we see the, the New Democrats govern. That's been the case in BC for decades and has been the case in, in Saskatchewan for the last generation as well. Um, so I think people in the Alberta party are duped into thinking, I don't mean that, I, that's, that came off wrong. I don't, I don't mean to say they're <laughs> okay, but I think, I think they have this view of Alberta politics being like the rest of Canada, when in fact, the Liberal Party's dominance as a centrist party is an anomaly globally, and certainly within Canada, when you look at the mm -hmm. province. Mm -hmm. You know, I was at, I was at a, a Manning Centre conference, Manning Centre networking conference in about 20, oh, must have been, it was right after the 2011 election when the Liberals had virtually collapsed and they'd won like 30 seats under, under Michael Ignatieff. And so this would have been around 2012. And there was a pollster and I cannot remember who it was, uh, but they were talking about, they'd done a bunch of, of research polling into uh, party loyalty and, and and the strength of political parties in Canada. And and one of the things that they, just, just talking about your, your comment about the Liberal Party being the natural governing party, their comment was to a group of conservatives at a conservative conference, uh, right after the liberals had been obliterated in the election, they said, do not, you know, the liberals may be at their weakest now, but do not underestimate them. Uh, even at their weakest, they have the strongest vote. Their, their, their voters are the, are the most loyal voters in the country. They have the strongest uh, brand loyalty is what they basically, I think how they framed it, uh, of any political party in Canada. And what do you know, ended up being four years later, the Liberals went from third place to a majority government um, uh, under under Justin Trudeau. So I think there's, the, you know, when, when you're talking about, yeah, like the, 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 the uniqueness of the, of the federal Liberal Party, that's not something that's easily replicated by, by another provincial party. And, you know, maybe we had a bit, had quite a bit of that with the progressive conservatives in Alberta um, for their 44 years in government to very, varying degrees and large majority governments. Um, but it's not something that can be just replicated overnight. I mean, even Peter Lougheed didn't just uh, create that. That's something overnight. That's something that was built over decades. And the kind of big, grand, big tent coalition party that uh, that uh, that was they were able to to maintain for that long. So Lougheed's a, a I'm glad you brought him up because Lougheed's an interesting example. And Lougheed, uh, when he came on the scene in Alberta, uh, first contested the 1967 election. The summer before, he visited Duff Roblin in Manitoba. Because Duff Roblin had done something that he wanted to do. Duff Roblin had unseated the Liberal Progressive Party, who had been in power for 30-some-odd years. Nobody even touched them. And uh, Lougheed wanted to do the same thing here to social credit. So he went and talked to uh, Roblin. Roblin said, oh, man, I, I was going into communities and asking, uh, can I talk to some conservatives? They always point me to the cemetery because the Conservative Party was all but dead in Manitoba at the time. And Roblin said, so I just gave up looking for conservatives. I just went around looking for disgruntled liberal progressives. And he ended up flipping a bunch of constituency associations, right? I think, you know, if I was a ground a grassroots organizer for the Wild Rose Independence, Wild Rose has done this before. They ended up flipping a bunch of PC constituency mm -hmm. associations uh, earlier in the century here. 
Um, if I'm the Alberta party, that's what I'd be looking to do. I wouldn't be looking to you know go door to door trying to pull in people one by one. I'd be looking to convert entire constituency associations in Calgary and say, look, this is our time. You're obviously fed up with your leader. Let's move uh, over, uh, you know, and, and, and organize for the Alberta party. That's the way Lawhe did it. You mentioned the uh, the Wilders Independence Party, so we'll we'll move on for the Alberta Party. They, uh, we, you know, we love them. They, they, uh, they, they have a lot of loyal listeners to this podcast, but they do take up quite a bit of quite a bit of oxygen uh, for being a party with no seats. Uh, moving on to another party with no seats for now, uh, the Wilders Independence Party. I keep on waiting for Drew Barnes to make the jump. Uh, I mean, Drew Barnes, the MLA, the UCP MLA for Cypress Medicine Hat. Uh, you know, he's the I think he's the lone. What original Wild Rose um, caucus member still left in the legislature? The, the only Wild Rose MLA elected in 2012 during, in their breakthrough. I think he's the only one still left. Um, he was their finance, the UCP finance critic before the election. He was overlooked for cabinet. I mean, I've heard various rumors about he might have been offered a position, and but might not have been senior enough. I, you know, those are all rumors. Um, but he's uh, he's. <sighs> He seemed to have he seems to have made a name from as a uh, as a backbencher, one of the only backbenchers who's who kind of reliably speaks out on issues um, and uh, and breaks from from uh, from the uh, from the government. Though I for, I was looking at his re voting record in the legislature, and his voting record is very much in line with the rest of the UCP caucus. But it's just on issues that that aren't being voted on in the legislatures where he's where he's speaking out. I mean, and Alberta autonomy, separatism. Um, he's weighed in on the mask and public health orders issue. Uh, and I keep waiting for him to uh, to jump from his role as kind of the unofficial leader of the UCP separatist caucus to actually jump in and, and lead the uh, lead the Wilders Independence Party. And I mean, you know, it would be he would have a new platform. He would be outside of government. Um, you know, in some ways, he might be more easily to uh, to isolate if he's outside government. And and uh, I do wonder how much energy is being put on in having him ha ha in the UCP trying to keep him in the caucus and not jump and join and form a, you know, a, a third party in the legislature, which, which I think would be very dangerous for the, uh, for the UCP if there were another, uh, another caucus and a conservative caucus in the, in the legislature. Yeah. He's been oddly silent over yeah. the last year or two, right? Yeah. Um, well, maybe and, he's in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I'm not hinting that he's, no, no, no. But no, I mean he's kind of in a way emblematic of uh, of that group of folks that has that has fled the UCP cause in in the polls to to support the Wild Rose Independence Party, right? I mean he, mm -hmm. he represents everything you, as you just said. He's he wants to build a firewall around Alberta, if not separate entirely. He's kind of gone both ways at various points. He's out there criticizing the government um, on uh, on issues in, in terms of freedoms and handling the pandemic and so on. So. Um, I don't know how much, I don't know the internal dynamics involved uh, here, but I don't know how much effort the Kenny, Kenny uh, and his team are putting into keeping him on board. Um, but we have seen in the past disgruntled, um, it, at the time, PC MLAs move over to Wild Rose, and we all kind of wrote it off as, well, those were the fringe members of the party mm -hmm. anyway, but it started the momentum, right? Mm -hmm. Floor crossing, it, it, it isn't just a, you know, the most successful floor crossings are not just one or two people moving, but those one or two people uh, then trigger other people to start thinking about uh, their future as well. Can lend credibility to a cause. 
Um, and on other hands, if you if you attract the wrong types of people, as we've talked to party leaders and chiefs of staff about party crossing over the last few years, <laughs> uh, they've said sometimes we've just said no, you're not coming over here because you're not going to help the brand image, right? But I'd have a hard time thinking Wild Rose Independence wouldn't look at somebody like Drew Barnes and think this this is the kind of person that we want to to represent us, right? In the next in the next uh, in the next election and in the legislature in the meantime. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him be a, a leadership contender uh, over the year uh, at all. Yeah. And I, I mean, looking at the, even just looking at the results of the Saskatchewan provincial election, which just happened a few months ago, uh, you know, their, their separatist party, the, the Buffalo party didn't overall, I think they only got like 2% of the vote province wide. But when you look at those rural ridings, some of those deep rural ridings, like the Cypress riding, which neighbors, Drew Barnes, uh, Cypress Medicine Hat Riding, right on side of the other on the other side of the Alberta Saskatchewan boundary. I think the the Separatist Party got about twenty percent or twenty five percent of the vote. So, I mean, it may be a different province, but it's literally just their neighbors. So, I mean, I imagine that there's probably some very similar sentiment on on the other side of the Alberta Saskatchewan boundary and Drew Barnes Riding, and he's probably talking to quite a few constituents. Um, interestingly, that was actually um, that was Harry Strom's riding. Mm -hmm. I was going to say he was old, this is old Socred territory. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even even in the uh, even in the eighties, the uh, the representative party, the short lived representative party, actually did quite well down there. In uh, I think it was the eighty six election. So you know, there's a lot of I mean, uh, Carson Tabor Warner was right beside it. There's uh, you know, there's probably a lot of very very similar sentiment. And speaking of uh, opening the door or you know taking the 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 lid off the jar uh, around separatism around Alberta autonomy. I mean, Drew Barnes was on the Fair Deal panel uh, that uh, that toured the province last year uh, and released their report. Um, Premier Kenny, as part of that, um, uh, Premier Kenny has announced that there's going to be a referendum, provincial referendum this year on equalization. He's actually said numerous times there might be a number of referendums. I think just last week he kind of joked around saying there might be a referendum on daylight savings time. He said that during his one of his Facebook uh, Facebook Live segments. Um, we've heard that there might be a referendum on a provincial pension plan or withdrawing from the RCMP. I mean, it seems very strange to me that, I mean, obviously there there is going to be a referendum. As long as Jason Kenney is premier, there's going to be some kind of referendum. It's very likely there will be some kind of provincial referendum held at the same time as in municipal elections in October. Um, it seems strange to me that we don't yet know what the questions are and that that hasn't started moving yet. It seems kind of late for, I mean, obviously there's the pandemic that's been going on already, but it seems to me that, that the process of, of start of coming up with the questions and, and, and that would, would have happened by now, or, or it, would it be common for it to happen in the spring? Do you think it's too late? No, you ask any municipal election official and they'll tell you that we're about months behind on this. Um, yeah. The, the irony here is here. It's not even the provincial election officials that have to handle this. It's a municipal one. So, God bless them over the next next twelve months. We actually do have wording in the Fair Deal panel report. They did okay. they did offer wording for the for the question. And it's very straightforward. Do you support removing section from the the constitution that deals with the equalization principle? Which, for those that aren't familiar, is um, every provincial government should have um, uh, the capacity to deliver comparable levels of public service at comparable rates of taxation. So that the plan is to remove that from the constitution it has nothing to do with the formula, um, and as as Premier Kenny himself has has admitted, has absolutely nothing to do with even equalization, right? Because 
in order to remove that section from the from the constitution you'd need the support of seven provinces representing 50 percent of the population and that would include a bunch of equalization receiving provinces including quebec who has a virtual veto and some would argue even a constitutional veto over any changes to the constitution that affect it so this isn't really about equalization as in kenny's word it's about giving him leverage or he pronounces it leverage in order to negotiate <laughs> with the rest of canada on a host of other grievances that alberta has number one being fiscal uh, stabilization, which seems like it was eons ago that we were actually talking about that. So that's why it surprises me that he's willing to gamble um, this fall in, in terms of trying to gain leverage, in his words, to, to, to negotiate on something that the feds have already moved on, right? The feds have already made some substantive changes to the fiscal stabilization fund, largely because Kenny was able to, to marshal premiers around the call to make those changes. And I don't know how premiers, uh, how eager premiers are to make further changes that would help Alberta when Alberta has already been helped by the federal government in this way. So to me, it's, it's, it's riskier. I've written about this. It's riskier, I think, than a lot of people are, um, are, are conceptualizing right now, because if this turns into a referendum on Jason Kenney's leadership, uh, he could be very well surprised at the results. I'm not for one moment saying that he's going to lose it. Mm -hmm. our, our, our research shows that, you know, over half of Albertans in August 2020 would have voted to remove equalization from the Constitution. But what he needs out of this is an overwhelming vote. And that means, I would imagine, at least 50% turnout, right? Mm -hmm. Plus 50% of the people that are turning out supporting that position. Mm -hmm. Why on earth you would look for an overwhelming vote in a municipal election is beyond me. Municipal elections are notorious, especially in Alberta, for low turnout. So what happens if he gets 40% turnout, which would be high in some, some municipalities, right? 40% turnout with 55% of people saying remove it from the Constitution. If I'm the rest of Canada, if I'm the Prime Minister or another Premier, I look at that vote and go, that's, that's your overwhelming support? That's the leverage you want to, to come to the table with? Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's it's overall overall a pretty risky venture. Now on the other the other referendum questions you mentioned CPP and RCMP and so on, I think he's holding those back because after he does move forward with this equalization referendum, and let's just speculate that he does win it, um, the rest of Canada is not going to move on. We're not going to remove equalization from the constitution. They might not even meet with him to talk about these other issues. So then, what does he do? I'd argue then he trots out the other referendums to march out the 1990s greatest hits of the firewall letter, right? The talking about removing, um, or sorry, removing Alberta from the CPP and, and pulling out of the RCMP as kind of the next step. Um, I, I, that's that's my speculation. But again, I'm, I'm very surprised that they're going forward with this equalization referendum in the midst of a municipal election of all things. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'd be surprised if, I mean, because I talked to, even, even talking to, people who would consider themselves as progressives, as new Democrats or as liberals, uh, there's a lot of, a lot, I mean, there's, there's very much a, I mean, there's a misunderstanding about what equalization is, uh, about it not being, you know, this isn't a check that the Alberta government writes to the federal government every year, but, you know, a giant check and then they take the money. There's, it's, you know, I'll put a link up to one of the many articles that Trevor Toome has written about it. Uh, you know, and I mean, Trevor Toome will write, you know, he can, uh, you know, he'll publish articles. He's, you know, he, great uh you know really really great stuff but but it seems that uh that i i don't know if, if that's really uh there's not really an understanding of uh, really what really what equalization there's 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 a feeling that that uh, i think that that something that it's un, there's an unfair fiscal relationship with ottawa and and there's lots of you know there's decades of talking points that that have really kind of embedded themselves in, in albertans minds i would be surprised i'd be shocked if this referendum didn't if it got less than 70 percent support 
and that, and that's not necessarily not 70% turnout, but in terms of no. the people who vote, if, if there's less than 70%, I think that would be a, you know, even seven, less than 75%, I think that'd be a, 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 a big failure. But I, I do wonder about this referendum. It's going to be happening in, in tandem with the Senate nominee election, which is also kind of a weird election that we have here in Alberta every, I mean, the last time was eight years ago in 2012, which at that point it was with the, it was paired with the provincial election. Um, but even then the, 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 the turnout or the, the people who actually voted or, or didn't spoil their ballots uh, was much lower than the provincial vote in 20, 2011. Um, but it does seem like it's kind of this weird thing that they tag on that is important to quite a few people, but then it's kind of just this weird second ballot that people get um, when, you know, most people weren't really paying attention to the municipal election until the week before, <laughs> week before election day, and then only 30 or 40% actually come to turn out. And then they get this kind of weird ballot. And, and you have these candidates who've been running for, to become a Senate nominee in a province-wide race. So it's very likely that no one knocked on your door, or you probably didn't get a pamphlet, or you, you know, I mean, maybe 2020 will be different, and there'll be targeted Facebook ads, and people might might be more likely to see an advertisement from a Senate candidate and be aware that that election is coming. But it seems that the the this kind of political referendum and the Senate election, I mean, it seems designed to draw people's attention towards, uh, I mean, towards federal politics, towards provincial federal issues in a municipal election, which I think just creates a total dog's breakfast. And when you're going to, you're going to have um, open mayoral races in a number of cities, I mean, in Edmonton, Don Iveson isn't running again. In Grand Prairie, there's going to be an open mayoral race. Uh, Bill Given has just resigned, um, I think, to take over as CAO of Jas the town of Jasper, which sounds like a fantastic job. Um, and I think I heard maybe in one of, the, one of the other big cities, maybe it was Lethbridge that the mayor isn't running again. I'll have to, ch have to check that. So there's going to be all these open mayoral races and then there's going to be this equalization referendum, and then there's going to be the Senate election, uh, and you're going to have, you know, presumably Jason Kenney and MLAs get involved in the involved in the equalization referendum, which means that municipal candidates and candidates for school board are going to have to decide whether they they're going to take a position on equalization or the Senate, or if there are other referendums. So it just seems like this is uh, it's going to be extremely challenging for any candidate potentially extremely challenging for any candidate uh, who's going to, uh, you know, <laughs> going to run in this election because, you know, people are going to want to hear about, you know, what the candidate, what the local city council candidate has to say about potholes and the local playground and the local pool. Uh, and then, you know, and then they're going to be, there's going to be candidates who are just talking about equalization. So I, I think it's going to be, I mean, I think it's going to be great from a political uh, observer perspective. It's going to be fascinating to watch, but like, to the average voter, this is going to be quite strange, I think. And even to candidates, it's going to be quite confusing. I think it's also going to be interesting to see how parties line up on it, right? So on these Senate nominee elections, there, there's no rules stating whether these candidates have to be or should be from the provincial level or the federal level. So it's conceivable we could see some Wild Rose Independence Party folks uh, run for uh, the Senate nominee elections. But I'm watching the Wild Rose Independence Party to see where they line up on the equalization referendum. Mm. It's going to be fascinating to me because, you know, their immediate impulse you'd, you'd figure would be to remove equalization from, from the Constitution. But it's not quite that straightforward because they're actually advocating on leaving Canada altogether. So to that point, I mean, equalization is, a, is almost moot, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, do you really want to be handing Jason Kenney a political win in 2021? Right. So I'm not saying that, you know, Paul Hinman or whoever the leader is by that time is going to be out there stumping for the yes side or sorry, uh, stumping for the uh, I guess it would be the no side. Would you be out there stumping to say, <laughs> let's keep the equalization, the Constitution? I'm not saying that. 
But I think uh, you know a sly strategy would be to say spoil the ballot, right? Don't mm -hmm. give him the satisfaction of having more than fifty percent of people turn out in support of his his gambit, right? It's too late for that if I'm them. Um, and it'll be interesting also to see what the NDP does on the equalization referendum. I think you said seventy percent. I think it'll be less than that, but um, seventy percent people saying let's remove it from the constitution. But they know there's no winning strategy here. It's not as if in the course of a municipal election campaign, you're going to be able to uh, convince people of the merits of equalization. We can, mm -hmm. The best we can hope is that people understand it a little bit better. <laughs> but I don't think anybody um, on the New Democrat side would want to turn uh, Rachel Notley into a professor of political science with two years left before a provincial election either. So I, I think they'll, they'll just step aside and, and, and just call it, you know, a total waste of taxpayer money and, and a waste of our time, but not get directly engaged. Will the UCP and Jason Kenney stake their political lives on it? That's another question, right? I mean, they, they need this win badly this year. Um, mm -hmm. And if they don't come back with that resounding uh, result that they've been asking for, it could spell um, trouble for them heading into 2022 and the leadership race, or sorry, the leadership review that we all expect around that time. Mm -hmm. And I think about this, the Senate election, um, and I mean, what you talked about with the, you know, the Wilders Independence Party, and uh, I mean, I guess federally, the Maverick Party, the uh, Jay Hills uh, outfit, um, which was the formerly the formerly the Wexit Party. And I, I, I wonder, and I, I worry, I mean, I, I don't know if I should worry about this, but I think it'd be interesting whether, um, I'm saying maybe, maybe worry isn't, isn't, isn't the right word, uh, but uh, uh, whether the traditionally the other political parties, so the NDP and the Liberals, with the exception of the 1989 Senate election, Liberals have sat it out. The NDP have generally have sat it out. Um, I mean, I do wonder if the, this will be the Senate election will be a uh, you know a race between the uh, between the United Conservative Party, uh, you know, their candidate, and then the uh, whoever the uh, kind of the separatist party candidate is, and how much oxygen that will take up. And I think back to the, I mean, I just mentioned the '89 Senate uh, nominee election, and I mean that was real. That was won by uh, Stan Waters, uh, you know, the Reform Party candidate, and that was that was one of the big kind of the big political first political wins that uh, that the Reform Party had. And this was after I think it was right it was after right after Deb Gray's by election win, and all of a sudden they won this province-wide race the progressive conservatives under burt brown actually placed third i believe and the the liberals the liberals who then were i think he was under lawrence decor by that point but they actually placed second in the in the you know the province-wide senate election vote um and i do i do wonder whether that will be kind of a uh, a way that the this kind of separatist uh you know wild rose independence group um whether they're able to uh to you know to use that to create some momentum in rural alberta i mean i i generally think that i mean these Senate nominee elections are kind of are always a bit of a sideshow, and mm. I'm not sure they'll. I I have no indication that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will recommend the appointment of anyone who gets a, gets a, elected as a nominee. But as politically, I would think it's an opportunity to get out there and raise your issues and you know identify voters. And I've always felt this kind of a mixed missed opportunity on the part of the more progressive parties just to run a candidate and actually have a place there rather than yeah. just saying it's a, you know, it's it's kind of a useless election, which, I mean, it, kind of, which it kind of is. <laughs> the NDP philosophically and policy-wise has always been opposed to the, the notion of a Senate, right? So yeah. that's why they don't run uh, candidates. Um, secondly, the, the, the we've talked a lot about the UCP's declining in support, but the, the Conservative Party of Canada's numbers in Alberta remain strong. They haven't mm -hmm. seen the same kind of hit that the UCP mm -hmm. has. But to the broader point, I mean, you say, yeah, this is kind of a sideshow. Well, we've got two sideshows 
going to happen in the municipal election, neither of which is, is likely to result in any kind of substantive change. We're voting on Senate nominees that are unlikely, they won't be uh, approved mm -hmm. by, by the sitting prime minister who has to fill a vacancy, right? Two vacancies now, I think. Two vacancies right now. So he'll fill them before before the Senate nominee elections take place and he'll use this new independent process to do it. Got that happening, uh, that's not gonna result in any substantive change. And then we got an equalization referendum, which is not gonna result in removing equalization from, from the constitution, let alone give, give Jason Kenney, you know, kind of leverage at, at any kind of federal provincial territorial table. So what the heck are we doing, right? I come back to this, these poor municipal elections officials who already run off their feet trying to organize um, ballots just for candidates for mayor and council are now going to have to, at the last minute, put together these um, ballots for Senate nominee and, and equalization referendum. They're going to have absolutely no impact at all, substantively, in Canadian politics. And it's just, it's sad to me. Well, let's hope uh, 2021 isn't just, uh, isn't just sad. Isn't just sad. There's a lot going I don't disagree. With, I don't disagree with you on that. Uh, I mean, I think it is a, it is a distraction and it's not, not going to accomplish much. And I do think that, I mean, Alberta net now currently has, I think two of our six uh, Senate seats in, in Ottawa are actually are vacant and they will, I, I think it'd be, I'd be very shocked if they weren't filled by, uh, by October, 2021. Um, and those seats are, I mean, um, uh, Grant Mitchell who retired last year and then uh, Senator Lane McCoy who just passed away over the holidays. So there'll be, I'm sure that, that, uh, that those two seats will be filled uh, probably within, within the next few months. Yeah. And as a reminder to folks that the, these are not partisan appointees anymore. There actually is an yeah. independent process that's set up to select these folks based on more on merit than on partisanship than in the past. Yeah, there's an application or an application process, yeah, and you can uh, apply. Apply. Yeah, everybody, everybody who listens to this podcast should uh, should apply to uh, to become a senator. I mean, I I, th I I think it'd be a great job. I mean, I follow Paula Simons on Twitter and and follow her articles in Alberta Views magazine. And uh, I mean, being a uh, you know being a Canadian senator just sounds like a, a fantastic job. And I, I mean, I I make fun I make fun of it a bit, but I, I am glad that people like Paula are in the, are are in the Senate because I do think she's a uh, you know brings uh, brings a uh, uh, a much needed voice and a kind of a, a I don't know what I want to say. She's she's a smart person and she's a good person and I'm glad that there are people like people like that in the Senate and it's not just a kind of a purely political uh, political appointment. Though I do have to say um, I struggle between this because I think that well, I don't don't necessarily struggle with it. I think that I do think that in 2021 we should have a uh, we we should have an elected that there shouldn't be an appointed house of house of of parliament that's just one of my one of my personal personal feelings i don't necessarily think that the triple e senate uh model works i don't necessarily think even a province-wide voting model works i think that you know candidates who are running province-wide in alberta we're a province of more than four million people um uh it just seems kind of crazy that, that we would have a province-wide vote i think it would make more sense if we would break it up into dist into into districts uh even for this uh, for the senate nominee election but now we're now we're getting like really in the weeds and uh you know i wrote an article of uh, a couple of years ago when actually it was about two about a year it was a year or so ago it was right when the the ucp brought the senate election act back because the old senatorial selection act uh, expired under the ndp and the ndp never renewed it so it was just the first time in decades alberta didn't have any kind of senate nominee election act and then the ucp brought it back and and it was just like, I think about Senate elections in Alberta, I think about just how uncreative it is. It's just like, we're just going to have a pure vote and and like, we're not going to really going to put much thought in it. It's a province-wide thing. The parties are going to support them. And I went and looked back at this and I can't remember off the top of my head what exactly the details were, but in the 80s, 
there was a group of MLAs. It was during the big the the constitutional debates in the eighties and in, in the in, into the nineties, and there was a group of progressive conservative MLAs who were appointed to a special committee, and they came up with recommendations on how to reform the Canadian Senate. And there was actually I'll put a link up to this in the show notes. There was actually there were actually some like actually pretty interesting creative ideas in it in terms of of what uh not not just the kind of triple e you know simplifying things um it was very much like here's our so here's our recommendations to actually make this an effective institution an effective and elected institution it doesn't necessarily need to be equal i mean you know there's the uh, representation by population but but here's you know the, the the way the actual senate works here's a way to actually make it effective and i thought that was quite interesting and i think that that the one thing that really drives me nuts about these Senate nominee elections, and I know we spent, I think we spent way too much time talking about this at this point, but uh, I just, it the create the lack of creativity really, uh, uh, really just bothers me because I think that the institution, there's so many things, I, our institutions, you know, we need to take them seriously. Um, uh, tradition is very important, but we, but you know, they also need to evolve and, you know, we can make them better just because something was created in 1867 it doesn't necessarily mean it needs to stay the same way in stone and it hasn't stayed the same way in stone since but but you know these institutions can evolve and i think the same thing can be said with our provincial legislatures these things can evolve you know we don't necessarily just because we have i mean first past the post that's kind of the the, the thing i talk about a lot thing people a lot of people talk about um you know we can look at electoral reform we can look at the way our legislatures are uh, are um uh, operate the way they're they're composed uh, the, what who they're composed of who, how we elect our MLAs um, and we can we you know we we can we can do things better there there are there are options so but that's that's a completely different podcast I'm going off on a tangent now uh, and and I'd love to talk to you about that that another time but we are uh, we are we are running out of time we've we've uh, we've taken uh, an hour of your time today you've been incredibly generous to join us today Jared um, is there anything that you'd like to add before we uh, before we uh, before we log off. Well, yeah, just on your your last point about institutions being important, one of the most important things to understand about um, Alberta politics, Canadian politics in general, is that governments are held to account by MLAs. I think a lot of people forget about this, right? Um, so I'd like to think that there was there were enough people that called up their own MLA, regardless of which party that was from, and, and voiced their concerns. They weren't just calling you, Dave. They weren't just calling Rick Bell. They weren't filling my inbox, but they were actually taking the time to write and call their MLA and say, I'm upset about this. You need to do something about this. Those MLAs hold a lot of power in our system. They hardly ever exercise it, uh, at least in public, but they do make a difference around caucus tables, right? Mm -hmm. Caucus meetings are where uh, governing parties in particular hold their leadership and the government to account. So if people are upset or happy with the way things are going to happen, a rollout in 2021 in Alberta provincial politics, I hope you'll let your MLA know. They need to know. A lot of people say, well, I've written them three times. And they've never written me back. Yeah, well, the good ones will. But I guarantee you, if there's a stack of, in, of separate letters, not these form letters, right, that mm -hmm. we see floating around, but separate letters from concerned concern constituents, MLAs will not uh, ignore that. Uh, so if you're concerned, um, let, let your MLA know. If you're overly concerned, run, run, run for a position yourself. <laughs> We've got a lot of elections coming up, as we said. So I hope that that, I hope that people get engaged. Great. Thank you for, thank you very much. That's a great, great, great way, inspirational way, uh, to, uh, to end, uh, end our, our episode today. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jared for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate your thoughts, your ideas, um, um your perspective on Alberta politics. I'm, I'm sure I know our listeners will, uh, We'll uh, we'll really enjoy this podcast. Thanks to everybody for listening. 
thanks to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, again, for uh, making this podcast sound so great. Thanks, Adam. The uh, Dayberta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Send us your feedback on Twitter uh, and Instagram or on the Dayberta Facebook page. You can also email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. And if you've enjoyed uh, what you've listened to today and, and what we do bring out for you every uh, every second week or so, uh, feel free to leave a review or a rating where you listen to the podcast and share it with your friends and family or your coworkers. Uh, thanks again, and we'll uh, we'll be back soon. <laughs> <laughs>